0: makes its first appearance in a perfect garden in the cool of the day. And it hits like a warm breeze on a woman's ear. As the tempter whispers, did God really tell you that you couldn't eat of any of these trees? Don't you know that God really just doesn't want you to be like him? You can do whatever you want. You just need to take matters into your own hands and take this fruit and eat it. We see it again in the wilderness as the son of God is in a time of prayer and fasting, preparing for the ministry that he's about to embark on. And that same tempter comes to Jesus and he says, what are you doing, man? You look so hungry. You know who you are. You know what you can do. And so just take this stone and turn it to bread and eat. Why are you out here humbling yourself in this desolate place when you know who you are and you know what you could take and so if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. And from the garden to the wilderness, from the first Adam to the perfect Adam, and everywhere in between, one thing that's been constant throughout all of human existence is temptation. And everyone save one person in Christ, has given into it. And as we've been talking about Jesus preaching about and teaching about the kingdom of God all the way through the book of Luke, we find that for those who belong to the kingdom of God, temptation itself is a dangerous reality that comes both externally and also comes from within. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. As Jesus teaches us how, as his followers, we can not only recognize temptation, but he's also going to teach us how to live in community when that temptation turns to sin, and even when that sin is turned and directed towards us. And so let's look at the Word of God this morning as we read the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 17. Beginning in verse 1 And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, forgive him. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. And Father God, as always, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus, to know our suffering, to know our weaknesses. We even thank you that Jesus endured temptation on our behalf so that he wasn't a high priest who is unfamiliar with our struggles, but that he knows our struggles and our weaknesses inside and out. And so this morning, as we hear Jesus teach us about the dangers of temptation and also the importance of reconciliation, God, help us to see the vitality of this and the importance of this in our everyday lives, and especially in the context of the church and your kingdom so that our community will reflect your good grace and as Kyle was singing, your mercy. As we love you with all we have and as we go out to love our neighbors as ourselves. So speak to us through your word, teach us through your Holy Spirit, and may everything that we do glorify you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing when a story that comes at a certain particular place in time and space and history, has the power to transcend that moment. These stories that echo throughout generations, it's incredible that they have that kind of power. But it's especially amazing when a story has the power to change the way that people who live thousands of years later speak. And one of those stories is the story of the Trojan horse. Because if I were to come up and just mention a Trojan horse, or if I said, oh, they fell for that old Trojan horse, we would pretty much all know what I'm talking about. Even though none of us were around during the time when that story was written or when that story was spoken, that we're completely removed from the context that that story happens in, yet we still have that phrase embedded in our language. But just in case you don't, this is what happened. In this old Greek story. It tells a story about the Greek army who had been trying to lay siege on the city of Troy for a decade, and it just wasn't happening. It wasn't working. They weren't going to be able to win this fight until somebody had an idea. And they said, hey, guys, let's build a horse. And so they did. They built this horse, and so they bring it to the gates of Troy. And they say, hello, Trojans. It appears as though you have bested us. We've been trying for 10 years. We've been working real hard. We thought we were going to be able to beat you, but it turns out, you great and noble Trojans, you're the winners. And so because you're the winners, we felt as though you should have a trophy, and so we built you this giant, not suspicious at all, completely generous out of the loving nature of our hearts. We built you this giant horse, and we want you to have it. And so we are going to leave the horse here because we know you probably don't want to invite us in for dinner. We're going to leave the horse here, we're going to sneak back to our boats, we're going to sail away, and then you can have this horse. And so the Trojans said, you know what? That seems pretty legitimate. You guys take off. We're going to get the horse. And so they get the horse and they bring it inside. But what they don't notice is that this horse is kind of heavy for a wooden horse. I'd imagine a big wooden horse is pretty heavy anyway. This one's really heavy. And so they should have known something was up, but they didn't. And so they bring the horse inside. They shut the gates. They go to bed. And inside the horse is just a bunch of Greek people. And they pop out the bottom of the horse, they open the gates, and then they let the Greek army in, and they come in and they sack the city of Troy. And that story teaches us the danger of a lowered guard. The Trojans didn't see anything suspicious. They weren't paying attention. They weren't looking for the danger that was right in front of their face. And so as they laid their heads down and rested, their city fell to their enemies. When it comes to sin and temptation it's easy to feel one of two ways about it. On one hand, we can feel too familiar, and we can also feel too safe. So we can feel too familiar because especially if you've grown up in the South, then these words, temptation and sin, they're embedded in our language and our dialogue the same way that the phrase Trojan horse is. Good southern people, we know what sin is, we know what temptations are, and we're taught to be concerned about them from a very young age. And so it can be one of those things that we hear so many times that we don't really pay attention. But on the other hand, from a Christian perspective, we can believe and trust in this message that we've been hearing that God saves us by grace alone through faith alone. And that he who began the good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And that we have a God who protects us and goes for us and works through us and in us. And so we can start to think, you know what? I'm probably okay. I go to church every week. I do. I try to live a pretty good and moral life. I read my Bible pretty regularly. And so I'm probably okay. Temptation can't really get me. But Jesus thinks otherwise. And so he looks at his disciples, the people that are following him, and he begins his sentence by saying, temptations to sin are sure to come. They're absolutely going to happen. And the very literal reading of the word temptations there is a stumbling block. So something that is going to cause you to trip and fall, something that's going to get in your way, something is going to cause you problems. These things are all around you. I thought about doing this this morning, but I figured it might make things a little chaotic. But I thought it would be fun to rig the entire building with booby traps. But I would tell you, And I would have our wonderful welcome team at the door. And when you come in, they beg, hi, welcome to Redeeming Grace. We're so glad that you're here. If you're a visitor, thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us this morning. We're so excited to see you. The bathroom is right here, and you can get some coffee on your way through. Here's where all of our children's rooms are. Just so you know, there are booby traps all throughout the building. But you can go down the hallway and into the sanctuary. Please enjoy your time with us today. And you're already in the door, so it would be awkward and rude to leave. And so you've decided, I guess I'm going to go in, but it would probably change the way that you walk in the building. If it's your first time, admittedly, you'd probably be a little more scared than the rest of our people. The rest of our people might think, yeah, this seems like something Chris would probably do. But you would all walk in a little bit differently because we all have our routines. We come in, we do the same things over and over again. But if you're expecting that you might get hit with a giant rock when you walk through the door, you're probably going to walk a little more tentatively than you did last week. You'd pay attention you'd be heightenedly aware. And so Jesus tells us here that these temptations to sin, these stumbling blocks to our walk with Christ, to our spiritual life, they are sure to come. They are a definite part of our lives. And so our call here is to always be alert, to always be looking for temptation because it's always nearby. And if we're not careful, James gives us a very important warning. James teaches us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 of his letter. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so these temptations that we can often take for granted or just pretend aren't around us, James says those have very real consequences because those desires, those temptations that come from within and from without can lead us into sin. And sin, when it goes unchecked, can be incredibly damaging to the Christian life. When we're called to follow Jesus, when we're walking in the footsteps that Christ has laid out for us, When we hit these stumbling blocks, when we give into temptation, when we fall into sin, at very best, it's going to slow down our walk with Christ. Because it's tripping, it's falling, and we have to get up and we have to brush ourselves up and we have to kind of stretch it back out and regain our confidence. And we think, oh, I can't believe I did that. And so we have to brush ourselves off and then keep walking. But if the sin is particularly great, or if it's a stumbling block that we fall over time and time again, then the consequences become more severe. Because those things like guilt and shame that Jesus died to take away from us, our sin starts to allow to creep back into our lives. And all of a sudden we start to question, am I good enough? Can I really follow after Jesus? Have I gone too far? We start to feel like the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son that we talked about a few days ago that feel good and hopelessly gone. And God has to come and chase us back down and bring us back because that sin can have such damaging consequences on our spiritual walk. And so we need to see temptation before it strikes. We need to pay attention to the things around us that are trying to lure us away from following Jesus and cause us to fall into something that dishonors God. And when we see those things coming, we need to be willing and ready to jump, dodge, fight, or flee and do whatever we can to make sure that we avoid those stumbling blocks so that we continue following Christ at the speed that he set us free to follow him at. And so we have to pay attention. We have to be alert because temptation is all around. But Jesus says we have to pay attention not simply for our own good, but also for the good of the community as a whole. When we look at that story in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, after the serpent tempts Eve and then she gives into that temptation and her husband gives in in the exact same way, God comes and he finds them where they are. And God starts to lay out the consequences, the thing that we call the curse that comes from the fall. And when God confronts Adam and Eve, they start doing the very natural thing of saying, nope, wasn't me, it was her. And then she says, well, let's not get carried away here. Yes, I might have been first, but it was his fault, pointed to the serpent. And that's where God begins. And I think it's a really important thing to notice because Adam and Eve were the ones who actually fell into the sin. But the consequences, the curse of the fall began with the serpent and was most severe for the serpent. Because for Adam and Eve, there was death. There was all the things that came from that. There are the things that we suffer through now because of our sin. But also there was hope. And there was this message that one day what happened in the garden was going to be undone through Jesus. But for the serpent, there was this incredibly ominous curse where God looks at the tempter and he says, you know what? One day, the offspring of this woman is going to come and you're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head and undo everything that you've done. The punishment for the tempter was far greater than the ones who fell into it. And so Jesus tells us that temptations would come and that we should absolutely be on the lookout, but we also have to keep a watch on another potential source of temptation, and that's us. That each and every one of us have the potential to be a stumbling block for somebody else. And Jesus begins with the second half of verse one. He says, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And it is never good when Jesus says, woe. Jesus never starts a sentence by saying, whoa, you guys are doing amazing. When Jesus says, woe, it is always on the heels or a beginning of something really difficult to come. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus says, woe to you if you happen to be that stumbling block that causes someone else to fall into sin. And he could have stopped there and that would have been enough, but he didn't. He makes it a little more real in verse two. He says it would be better for him if a millstone, those are very big stones, were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus says it would be a far better circumstance for you if you were just tied to a rock and thrown into the water than if you happen to be someone through whom temptation comes to cause someone to sin. And the language that Jesus uses here when he says that causes one of these little ones to sin, it gives us that picture of a child. It's innocent and vulnerable and impressionable. And so Jesus reminding his disciples, he says, listen, there are people around you that look to you for guidance, that they are following you as you're following me. And so they might be weaker. They may be vulnerable. They may be impressionable. And you have this responsibility to make sure that you care for them well. This was the confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees over and over again, because here you had men that were in powerful positions People looked to them as examples of what it meant to be religious and moral, and they would use their position to take advantage of others and elevate themselves. But as followers of Jesus, we have to remember that we have two very important obligations when it comes to community life. We have an obligation to one another. Christians have an obligation to other Christians. The Bible says that we're supposed to be like iron sharpening iron. Hebrews tells us that it's our responsibility to stir one another up to good works. And so our relationships with one another should result in both parties worshiping God better, serving others more, and living a life that reflects the nature of Jesus the more we're around each other, the more we should all be looking like Christ because that's our obligation to one another. Not to lead each other astray and take each other in all different places, but to say, hey, I'm following Jesus. I am too. Let's do that together and encourage one another and keep one another pushing in the right direction. But we also have an obligation to those who don't know Christ. As we've seen over the last couple weeks, it's so crucially important that we put Jesus on display everywhere that we go. And that when people see us by the way that we speak, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we react, all of these things should so greatly reflect Jesus that when people see our good works, as Jesus says, they turn and glorify God because of the things that we do and the things that we say. Our lives should constantly be drawing people closer to Christ, and not further away. And so Jesus gives this simple yet stern command in verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Be aware of how you live, how you speak, and how you act. Because every word, every action, every motive that we have, and every reaction has an impact. Whether we believe it or not, it has an impact on those around us. And it's a dangerous place to find ourselves when what we say or what we do becomes a stumbling block that keeps other people from following Jesus as they should. And so we need to keep watch and we need to pay attention to ourselves and judge our own actions and motivations with a big magnifier and to make sure that everything that we do and everything that we say and the reasons why we do those things are pure and honorable and seeking after God and not for selfish gain and not for the harm of others. And we need to learn to put the spiritual health of other people on a high list of our priorities. When we're told to look to the needs of others, that's not just physical needs, but spiritual needs as well. And so we should make sure that we are lifting other people up and helping them grow closer to God. And we should strive to see our own personal growth reflected in the lives of others. That if I'm growing closer to Jesus, then people around me should be growing closer to Jesus as well, not being driven further away. And we have to make sure that we never, ever, 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 ever cause someone else to fall into temptation. But even if we take out the big magnifier, even if we walk carefully looking for temptations and making sure that we are not ever the cause of temptation, even if we do everything the right way, we cannot protect others from giving into sin. And what may be even more difficult to wrestle with is we can't protect ourselves from being sinned against from other people doing wrong to us think about even just in the genesis story right after that story in the garden of eden you see two brothers cain and abel and abel is just minding his business worshiping god doing the right thing and cain becomes overwhelmed with jealousy and kills his own brother Esau is just out doing his thing, going and finding food for his family. Meanwhile, his mom and his little brother are conspiring to find a way to steal his birthright out from under him. Joseph, admittedly a little bit of a braggart, He was a little mouthy for a younger brother, maybe could have been a little quieter, but all he was doing was telling his brothers about some dreams he had, and they were so angry with him that their first idea was to kill him, and then they thought, ooh, that's too harsh, let's just sell him into slavery, and that's exactly what they did. And you can see over and over again, all through scripture and all through history, that there are people who do the right thing, who live the right way, who follow God, and people still treat them harshly, speak against them, or sin against them. And as he always does, Jesus teaches us how to navigate this. And his instructions teach us so much about a very difficult and often messy side of the Christian life. Because even in the midst of a church context, even in the midst of a really good church, even in the midst of this beautiful kingdom of God, people are still people, we still mess up, we still sin, and we still have conflict. And when that comes, things get really messy, and it's usually easier just to flee and run away than it is to do what God calls us to do to make these things right, especially when Jesus uses this first word. In verse three, he says, pay attention to yourselves, and if your brother, and you can throw a sister in there too, if your brother or sister sins, he says, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Rebuke is an icky word. I don't like that word. It's very uncomfortable. It it just comes off the mouth a little weird, and it's a very unpleasant thing to think about, and it's certainly an unpleasant thing to do. It's super awkward. It can be super tense. It's also super important. But there's an art to this thing of Christian rebuke. When somebody in our midst, when somebody that we love and that we care for is sinning or even sinning against us, there's an art to rebuking the way that we're called to. It has to be done in love. Above all things, if we go to someone because they're sinning and because something's going on in their lives, if we're going to confront them on that, it has to be done out of the motivations of pure love. And the motives have to be correct, too correct. Our motives have to be, I'm going to you so that you might can see what's going on and then turn and follow Jesus and correct that pathway, not to bring shame or to punish. And it has to be done with Humility. It has to be done by the kind of person that Jesus talks about here because he says, if you're going to go take a speck out of your brother or sister's eye, you better make sure that you've dealt with the log in your eye first. You better make sure that you've spent time dealing with your own sin and you have to be the kind of person that if someone comes to you to do the same thing, that you would receive that well." Because if we can't do those things, if it's not done in love, if it's not done out of pure motives, if it's not done for the sake of bringing about restoration and done with humility, then it's not going to be rebuke. It's going to be condemnation and it's going to be judgmental. And that's not how we're designed to communicate and to deal with one another. But then Jesus gives us the other side of this that might be even more difficult. Because he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And this is that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. And as we've got some weddings in our church coming up on the horizons, that's one of those passages that gets read at weddings all the time. And it's important. Those are good marriage principles. But that 1 Corinthians thing that happens there is for every relationship. That's the way that as followers of Christ, we're supposed to love everyone. And so when we're told by Paul that love is patient and kind, that's how we should interact with one another as well. And when Paul tells us that we should keep no records of wrong, that's not just for husbands and wives. That's for friends and family and the community of God. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do here. And so maybe you say, well, what about, what about if it happens multiple times? What if somebody, and I'm just going to pull this number out of my head. What if somebody sins against me seven times in one day, Chris, then what do I do? Well, funny you had mentioned that exact number. Because Jesus says right here, if someone sins against you seven times in the day and then turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Forgiveness is part of the DNA of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's who we're supposed to be. And we are supposed to be people who give away forgiveness as often as it's needed. When we cause someone to sin, when we're the source of temptation that leads someone astray, when we cause someone to sin, we couldn't be further away from the character of God. But when we forgive someone who sins against us, we couldn't be closer. When we lead someone astray from following after Jesus, we are literally acting in direct opposition to who God is and who God calls us to be. But then when somebody sins against us and we forgive them, we are putting into motion the gospel. Because it was Jesus who was hanging on the cross, looking at the people who put him there, looking over them with compassion and mercy. And even though all the people around him have sinned against him, and the Bible tells us that everyone who has ever sinned has sinned exclusively against God. As Jesus looks at that crowd and thinks about each and every one of us as he's on the cross, he looks out and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And so every time someone sins against us and we offer that forgiveness, we are echoing those words of Jesus in what we do. And we are reflecting the good character of our God. We have a king who forgives us. We have a kingdom that was born out of forgiveness, that it was instituted by God through that act of forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. And now that kingdom is sustained by forgiveness. Forgiveness is the ligament that holds the body of Christ together. Without it, when sin comes, when things happen, when, when confrontation arises in the life of the church, if it wasn't for forgiveness, we would pull apart and shatter and be no good at all. But forgiveness, like a good ligament, just holds those bones together and keeps everything in place so that we can continue doing the work that we're called to do as the body of Jesus. we need to create a culture of genuine forgiveness. The kind of culture where we recognize that at some point in time, someone might sin against us, someone that we love, someone that we're close to, someone in our church, someone that calls themselves a follower of Jesus might do something that wrongs us and that we have to be bold enough to talk with them about it and we have to be humble enough and gracious enough And merciful enough to offer forgiveness. That's a difficult thing to do in our culture. That's a difficult thing to do in our world because it's so much easier just to cut the ties and walk away and let the bones fall apart. But that's not who we are. That's not what God saved us for. God has saved us to be one body because we have one faith and one baptism and one Lord Jesus Christ. And we have one mission to serve God and to go out and to love our neighbors ourselves as we do that. And we need each other for that. And so we can't allow something like sin to tear us apart. And so we need to be the kind of people who are vulnerable enough to admit when we've wronged, to be humble enough to love those who have wronged us, and are Christ-like enough to forgive as many times as necessary. The Bible tells us there's going to come a day when God wipes sin and temptation away from his world completely, and it's going to be a really good day. But until then, this is the reality that we have to navigate as part of the kingdom of God. We have to navigate our own lives that are filled with temptation and sin. And thank God that we have these gifts of repentance and confession that when we mess up and fall short, we don't have to bear the shame and the guilt of that. We don't have to try to catch up with God. But in fact, he runs to us to pick us up and to help us along the way so that we can get up and keep moving. But we also have to navigate a world where sin and temptation are an ever-present reality. And so we have to be alert. We have to flee temptation. We have to make war with any part of our lives that would be a stumbling block to others. And we have to be the kind of people that practice humble, Christ-like restoration and forgiveness when those close to us fall into sin. And if we can't do those things, we are not going to be able to fulfill our mission to do what we're called to do as the church, to go out and to be the kingdom of God in this world so that people will see our good God. We cannot do that if we don't have these kind of relationships when difficult things arise and when temptation and sin tries to pull us apart so let's continue doing that. Let's continue being that kind of people, loving God with all we have and then loving one another with that first Corinthians God honoring Christ reflecting kind of love so that the kind of community that we have in good times and in bad will reflect our God to the world around us and draw people to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.